This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to the season finale of The Reckon Interview. We hoped to be able to talk today about the long-term effects of the elections in the South, but at this moment, at 2 p.m. Central Time on Wednesday, we do not yet know who the president-elect will be. I think we have enough to to have some broad conversations about the elections in the South. But I'm your host, John Hammontree, joined by my co-host, R.L. Nave. R.L., let's talk quickly before we introduce our panelists, but what were your quick takeaways from last night and this morning? Well, I think in some ways we do know what the South is going to look like. We know that medical marijuana is legal in Mississippi. We know that Mississippi's going to get a new state flag. We know that Doug Jones might be the next attorney general of the U.S. if, if... if Biden pulls this thing out, you know, he's on the short list, as AL.com reported. And so, I mean, I think if you're somebody living in the South who doesn't feel great about the fact that the the national election was so close, I mean, there there's a lot of stuff you can hang your hat on. And we know that the Reckon interview bump was not enough for Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, who was polling within two points and I think went on to lose by double digits. But we are joined today by John Archibald and Roy S. Johnson. We're going to be talking later in the show about their upcoming season of Reckon Radio, Unjustifiable. But let's start out talking a little bit about what you guys think went down yesterday and what you anticipate this means for the South moving forward. Roy, let's start with you. Well, John, what happened yesterday wasn't wholly surprising. Having moved here from New York six years ago, I've seen elections where early polling was not accurate because what people say and then what people do when they get into the voting booth is often and now regularly totally different, particularly when you have either a, a campaign or a, an election where race is a factor or in this case, everything was a factor. There was a lot of divisiveness. So I'm not surprised it was so close. I think people forget that every presidential election is not certified until several days after election night. So this is not unusual. What is certainly unusual is the closeness of it. What is unusual is how much is at stake. We have all said and and embraced the idea that this was the most important election of our lifetime. And that's even for people like me and John, who've had a pretty good uh, and extended lifetime. So we've seen seen a few elections. My first one goes back to 1976 and the election between Gerald Ford and, and Jimmy Carter. So I certainly believe it was the most important election I've seen can't wait to hear what John says, but I think we are, uh, as far as the South, baby steps. As Ryan mentioned, uh, we've seen some change in Mississippi. Not sure we saw any significant change uh, in Alabama. Maybe some baby steps. Uh, feel a little bit better about where we are now versus when I arrived here. And then, of course, we're still waiting to see what happens in Georgia. John, you've been on sabbatical for a little while. We haven't had you in Alabama for, for most of this campaign season. Although I guess it feels like the campaign's been going on for four years. You know, what What do things look like up there from your perch at Harvard? Oh, you know, the thing that strikes me is just, it's not news to anyone, but the takeaway from this election is just how deeply divided this country really is. And for a lot of the people who really felt like, you know, after four years of Donald Trump, there would be a, a an uprising against the sort of 
talk particularly about in racial areas, those who think that President Trump has been openly racist for four years, or at least part of that, thought that there would be a a repudiation of that. And that did not happen. I mean, we may have, again, we're we're sitting here speculating who's the president, whether it's Trump, but, but whatever happens, we know that repudiation did not occur. I think that many people who thought they were in store for a better America, a better, a more open and accepting America after these four years are deeply disappointed on the day after the election because they thought they knew their country better. Yeah, I mean, even if by the time this goes live, if Trump has lost, it does seem like in some ways Trumpism was vindicated for the Republican Party. They won more Senate seats and polling indicated that they might. Democrats were not able to close the door on on some of those tight races. You know, Georgia possibly being the one exception right now, it is it is a toss up. If things stand as they are at the moment, we'll be looking at two runoff elections for Georgia Senate in the months ahead, which could decide the fate of the Senate. But by and large, it seems that the Republican Party's takeaway from this is is going to be go all in on the base and turn them out. Donald Trump got more votes this year than he did in 2016. And I saw one of our colleagues at AL.com reported that this was the biggest back-to-back election blowouts in Alabama since FDR won the state in the 30s and 40s. So, I mean, he certainly has has run up the score in states like Alabama, even if he's not keeping it as far ahead as he was in states like Georgia. And that seems to just come down to Atlanta is is bigger than Birmingham. Atlanta is the difference in a Georgia. Milwaukee is the difference in a Wisconsin. Detroit is the difference in a Michigan. And Alabama does not have that massive mega city for Democrats to make inroads in. You know, if you look at county demographics, it's almost party line, red, blue, black, white, all throughout Alabama. And we haven't gotten past that bridge for the last hundred years. I don't know if we're going to get past it. Well, I mean, it's not just Alabama. Let's be clear about that. I mean, this is a nationwide issue. And and what is the most frustrating to me is just the sheer partisanship of it all uh, is not something we're accustomed to seeing. And, and, and Roy talked about our long lives in our long view of politics. I mean, we, I don't think we've seen this in those time period you talked about. I mean, I was talking to a professor today who was looking at judicial appointments and the gap in essentially the way that decisions by appointed judges, essentially 80% of Obama-appointed judges are, are deciding cases on voting rights that would you know, increase vote, you know, make it easier to vote. And 80% of Republican appointees are making decisions which would essentially make it more difficult to vote in cases. We've never seen that amount of partisanship in judicial decisions before. I mean, and of course, now we have a a Supreme Court that's even more heavily one-sided. And so, you know, how do we come back from this? A lot of people don't trust their courts right now. But if we can't, as a country, trust our courts to, you know, get us through this, if everything is partisan, then where do we go? And beyond just the partisanship of it all, John, for me, my disappointment, my biggest disappointment is the lack of respect for the truth. We have had a leader who has essentially created an entire industry of fact checkers just because everything that comes out of his mouth 
needs to be fact-checked, needs to be confirmed. And even since last night, in declaring victory, one network pretty much pulled him off the air and just said, that is not true. What he said is not true. So I'm disappointed that people seem to have lost respect for the truth. And then if you move beyond that, what our democracy stands for. I'm actually working on a column that'll be published by the time this comes out that just talks about, I went back and looked at the Constitution, looked at the preamble of the Constitution to see what our forefathers envisioned for this nation. And man, we have fallen off the rails from what they envisioned. And certainly they were flawed individuals, flawed men, as we know. But their vision is certainly quite a bit far from what where we are now. That's what, to me, is the most disappointing factor of what uh, transpired last night. To think that right now in this country, in this moment we're sitting in, whether it's true in this area or not, that the decision on who will be president will really could come down to issues of, you know, states' rights, as the Trump campaign has sued a lot of states for their decision to allow counting of ballots and have to and such. And it's just interesting to me that you find that all of the states that have made a career out of proclaiming that states' rights are the most important function of of government are just willing to throw up their hands and say those states have no rights. It's a lack of consistency and some would say hypocrisy. Yeah, we dare defend our rights when it's convenient. R.L., we started this season looking at the fight for the ballot and looking at kind of that long Southern strategy, which, you know, those two things do seem to have shaped this election season and these election results. But we also spent part of that time talking about coalition building. And there does seem to be some reason for hope in the South. You mentioned some of the ballot initiatives in Mississippi. We've seen some in Florida. I mean, to be blunt, you know, this is a very different set of circumstances for progressive activists in the South. Clearly, we don't have anything matching the racial terror of the 1950s and 1960s and earlier days. But to what John was just talking about, we also are now in a situation where Supreme Court and Congress are probably going to be more hostile towards those progressive movements. You know, the president may or may not be somebody who who would be open to those things, depending on when this airs or the results when this airs. And so it seems like, you know, some of the movements that we're, we're going to be watching in the weeks and months and years ahead are going to have to be, you know, local advocacy and, and state advocacy movements. They won't be able to rely on some of the legal strategies that we talked about in the Supreme Court episode, you know, after your conversations with Enrique Bennett, where you think those activists are finding hope this morning. I mean, I just want to give those folks a shout out because if you look at how deeply divided the country is and how close some of these margins are, and, you know, think about folks who are doing voter registration drives, who are mobilizing folks to get out to the polls, which, you know, is hard work under any set of circumstances. And so the fact that you had groups like Mississippi Votes and Woke Vote, Black Voters Matter, who actually overcame like a lot of challenges and actually registered thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of new voters. And then, you know, the coalition of groups that actually got them out to the polls yesterday and supported folks, you know, standing in line so that their votes could be can't like, where would we be without that work? I'm sure a lot of those folks are sitting around wondering today, you know, is it all worth it? Some of the bigger battles, they may feel like they didn't win. But, I mean, I don't see that going anywhere. 
And, you know, kind of like we talked about on the podcast this year, I think they're finally starting to be built an infrastructure in the South so that you can keep the momentum from a presidential campaign into local municipal county elections, legislative elections. You know, I think that like folks are building the bench, you know, for some of these smaller races and so that they can apply some of the lessons from campaigns like this to races going forward. You know, they're probably going to have to hit pause, take a break, take some mental health days. But, you know, I, I see them fighting just as fiercely, you know, come next year and come these battles for the state houses in the future. And so, I mean, I think, you know, I think that's dope. I think that's something that we should take away and feel good about. And Ryan, let's be clear, as we sit here on the day after the election, not quite knowing the outcome, a lot of those activists are remaining hopeful because it seems that what we are seeing, as John alluded to earlier, in these last days of counting are ballots that are coming in from these major urban areas. Uh, Woke Vote, in partnership with other organizations, had a huge tour that came to Birmingham and Montgomery uh, last week, went to Atlanta, went to Philadelphia, and ended up in Detroit. I mean, I've been texting with Duana Thompson of Woke Vote, and they are in Detroit. That's where they were yesterday. Detroit and Philadelphia are still going to play a role in the outcome of this election as those votes in those areas are counted. So I certainly agree that a, an infrastructure, which began under the effort to register voters prior to the 2017 election that sent Doug Jones to the U.S. Senate, we saw it build. We saw other groups emerge beyond work vote. They forged some coalitions. They had investment. They had infrastructure. They had a plan. And they did have an effect on this election. So it may not be clear right now, and it may not have been as much as the groups would have liked to have seen, but I totally agree that there's an infrastructure, there's a new level of excitement and participation among urban voters. And if that can be continued, if that can be nurtured, you certainly hope to see an effect on local elections, on school boards, on state legislatures, where now most people can't necessarily name who their state legislator is. So I'm excited and I try to you know, have the glass half full on, on almost everything, but I am excited about what's gonna transpire here in Alabama over the next two to four years. And let's acknowledge that Amendment 4 passed, so we are gonna start the process of finally stripping the racist language out of the state constitution, which you know, as John knows is this onerous, massive whale that pretty much should be torched and rewritten And let's also give credit to the state because while there was so much massive unrest going on around the country where the National Guard and the military were being sent in, that really didn't happen in Alabama. We had the one day of unrest that was around the Confederate monument. But as the rest of the country was on edge, as cities were were seeing unrest throughout the call for police reform, we saw a bit of it in in Huntsville. Uh, And there's certainly still questions about what transpired there and and, and what the police should be held accountable for. But relative to some of the massive demonstrations we saw and, and the conflicts we saw around the country, that didn't happen in Alabama, which is ironic, of course, because Birmingham certainly was ground zero for the type of unrest that changes America. So I give credit to citizens here who are fighting for reform, who put on peaceful demonstrations, but not to the point where we saw massive conflicts that in certain ways set back the movement uh, that we saw around the country. Well, and, and you mentioned that infrastructure, and I, mean, I think it's also worth noting 
that in states that started to build that infrastructure, you know, a little earlier than Alabama and Mississippi, those are the states that are toss-ups right now that we still don't know the results in. You know, North Carolina, the work that the Reverend Barber and others have done there with the Moral Monday movement, you know, for the last couple of decades. And obviously the work that Stacey Abrams put in in Georgia over the last couple of decades, those have closed the gap there. In addition to, of course, Atlanta and Charlotte being major metropolitan areas that that have attracted people from from all around the country. John, I see I see you smirking. So you got something on your mind. What, what are you thinking, John? Um, it's going to surprise no one, I guess, to find out that I am less hopeful than at least the two of you. Because I mean, in in the grand scheme of things, and again, we don't have all the final results of these elections, as we keep saying, but it looks a lot like it did four years ago, uh, and not a, a great a difference in tone to what the votes were in 2020, this year of unprecedented racial reckoning, where many people thought throughout the spring and summer that uh, a real sort of peak had been scaled and that it would result in massive change. What I take away from this election is, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of turnout on the Biden side, but there was a lot of turnout on the other side too, which seemed in large part to be fueled by preserving the white power status quo. And it just tells me that we have a long way to go to make sure that we can even pretend to ensure equal rights for all. Yeah, I mean, I do think that we saw some of that change happening more on the local level than on the state level or national level. I mean, like you just described, but that led to a change in mayor in in Florence, Alabama. It led to Confederate monuments coming down in Birmingham and on campus at the University of Alabama and at the University of Mississippi. It did lead to Mississippi finally changing its flag. And, and some of those things are, of course, largely symbolic, but we're certainly not returning to normalcy anytime soon. I think this election certainly did not lead to, oh, you know, next week we're going to wake up and everybody's going to go back to uh, just kind of politely discussing the Iron Bowl <laughs> over Thanksgiving dinner. We're probably going to be in for a ride for a few more contentious years. But, you know, it does seem like those conversations are starting and, you know, we're, we're just going to have to keep staring into the abyss for a little while longer, I guess. Well, I appreciate y'all's hope. I mean, I, I do, because without it, we're really, really and truly screwed. You know, hope makes makes you want more. Well, coming up after the break, we're going to talk about a podcast that you guys have in the works that may actually give people reason for hope. It is a story of uh, local activism that led to political change in Birmingham, Alabama. And they went up and shot her. The police shooting of a young woman in 1979 changed her city. Some say changed the world. It led to riots, protests, outrage, and the usual responses from those who had ruled the South for so long. I remember there were cars with white men driving through the neighborhood, shooting the neighborhood. Now, now I can't say they were Klan, but my guess is, you know, they were, they didn't look like me. It changed the balance of power in Birmingham, Alabama, a city once known as Bombingham. It upended a police department built by that infamous Bull Connor. It ignited a movement four decades before Black Lives Matter. That's what struck me. Days later, weeks later, years later, that I would really come to grasp the significance of what she had done, of her death. What was it about this woman? Birmingham's history, maybe? 
maybe hundreds of police shootings that came before her. And I remember asking myself, Are you, am I going to be able to shoot somebody that's just running unarmed? And I don't know what I would have done. Hundreds of killings of black people over generations ruled justifiable. And it just spurred a question in me is, is how often does that happen? And I thought it would be as simple as that to, to find out. What does Benita Carter still have to teach us? And what really happened on that fateful Friday night? And so I just said, you know, incidentally, who was the officer who did the shooting? And Myra said, Joy Sands. I said, oh my God. Hello, is this Mr. George Sands? That's Unjustifiable, a new six-part series from Reckon. Coming soon to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any of your favorite platforms. Benita Patrice Carter. Say her name. John, you've been working on season three of Reckon Radio for about two years now. Give us a quick rundown of what it is. You don't have to give it all away. We hope people go subscribe to Reckon Radio. They can listen to it on November 16th. Tell us what you have in store for this season. Yeah, I've been working on it since it was going to be season two of Reckon Radio. Right? <laughs> you know, I grew up in Birmingham and East Birmingham, as a matter of fact. And, and all my life, I'd known the story of Benita Carter, this 20-year-old woman who had been shot by police in the 70s. And how that had, you know, protest and outrage over her death, shot by a police officer with a history of complaints who had already been pointed out as a problem to the mayor himself, but nothing had been done about it. How that really created a, a wave of change in Birmingham, which really swept away in many ways the old police department that had been built by Bull Connor and ushered into office. Richard Arrington, uh, the first black mayor of Birmingham, long before anybody thought that possible, who made it a point to reshape the police department and make it more representative of the people and to cut down and to change the shooting policy. But I've always thought that that was a really important moment. And this seemed like the right time to really look at it in depth. And it's interesting because a lot of what you and Roy explore in this podcast is race and memory and white Birmingham and white Alabamians remember the shooting of Benita Carter very differently than than black Birminghamians and, and black Alabamians. Roy, you grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and, and obviously the Tulsa massacre is another story, another tragedy that involves race in, in terms of how, how we collectively remember it. I think that America in the last four years has really started to to reckon with that history. But I know that was on your mind while you were working on this podcast with John. Talk a little bit about that. It's not just how we collectively remember it, but how we selectively forget it, how we choose to remember it. As you mentioned, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which in 1921 was the site of the worst race massacre in the history of this country, uh, which for many years was known as the Tulsa Race Riot. But thanks to the efforts of many people, it has been changed to be known as the Tulsa Race Massacre because whites essentially went from one side of town, was very segregated at the time, went to the black part of town, which was not only just all black, but it was a thriving black community, a middle-class business community 
so much so, thriving so much that it was known as Black Wall Street and still to this day is recognized as Black Wall Street. Marauded through there based on the false accusation that a Black man had attacked a white woman. He essentially had bumped into her in an elevator and, and late years later, I believe, admit that their claim was false. But whites went to the jailhouse to try to lynch him. The jailkeeper did not provide them with him. And so they went to the other side of town, burned down Black Wall Street and, and murdered up to 300 African-Americans and many of whom were buried in mass graves. And so next year is the 100th anniversary of that. But from my recollection and working on the Benita Carter podcast, which I was privileged to be brought into, I didn't find out about the race massacre until I was out of college. It was not discussed. It was, it was completely hidden. And I understand later that both whites and blacks were so embarrassed by what happened that they literally chose not to speak about it, not just change the narrative, but to ignore the narrative to the extent that if you go into the microfilm and look at the Tulsa Daily World newspaper on the three days covering the massacre, there literally are gaps where the stories about the massacre have been cut out of the microfilm. There was a conspiracy of silence that went that deep. I have a mentor who worked for my dad. My dad owned a drugstore on Greenwood, which was the central street on Black Wall Street. One of her first jobs out of college was working for my father in his store. And I spoke to her last year asking for some memories. And she talked about coming home one day after hearing something about this riot and asked her grandmother about it. And the first thing her grandmother said is don't ever talk about that again. So as I worked on this podcast, it became clear that to a narrative that had been distorted throughout John's lifetime, as he mentioned, he heard what he heard was different from the facts. And we're reintroducing it, not just to Alabamians, but to America at a time that is so reminiscent of that day in the 70s when Benita Carter was killed simply driving away, trying to move a friend's car, killed by a policeman. It was exactly reminiscent. You can go to Breonna Taylor, you can go to George Floyd, so many things that have happened this year and that America is going through some change. Maybe it's not as quick and seismic as happened in Birmingham. And again, it wasn't quick in Birmingham, but it exposed, a lot of people talk about how the, it led to the election of Richard Arrington as the first black mayor, I think as important as John noted, it led to much needed significant change in policing. And what this podcast also exposes is the depth of just egregious police actions against Black people in Birmingham that went on for decades to the extent that it was acceptable to shoot someone as they were running away, shoot them and kill them and deem justifiable. So I give credit to John and everyone who did the great research for this podcast. I learned something. I think our listeners will learn something and will be hopefully inspired by this knowledge that just is part and parcel of everything we're learning now. We are now digging back into history, relearning history, exposing history and all of its warts and evils. But it's necessary for people like me. And I think all of us here would say we were misserved by the teaching of history that we underwent throughout our schooling. And at least I find myself going back to catch up through documentaries, through uh, online research, and just being amazed and sometimes even mad that I didn't know this before. I didn't know that before. Why have I never heard this name? But now is the opportunity for us to all catch up and get a broader 
better, more truthful sense of how we got to this place and what we can do to get past it. Yeah, this does seem to be that kind of lost chapter, omitted chapter of Birmingham civil rights history. You know, it's what, 16 years after Children's Crusade, letter from Birmingham jail, you know, that, that period of Birmingham that we all know pretty well. And it does usher in the Richard Arrington era and the political machine that he built that would eventually lead to Birmingham and Jefferson County have black elected leaders in almost any city and countywide position, which is obviously a huge difference from the Bull Connor era. And, and it happens, like you said, Roy, not quickly, but this was an inflection point. John, you researched and determined that there were 500 police shootings of people in Jefferson County in, in the 20th century. What was it about Benita Carter? It's justified killings, right, John? Justified, not just killings, but justified killings. Well, the 500, it's hard to tell all of the justified ones because that's cobbled together from a coroner's book and from this treasure trove of files we found about justifiable shooting. It's more, I mean, we can say in the three decades leading up to the Benita Carter killing that there were 213 shootings, 213 justifiable shootings in Jefferson County. 200 of them were black men. And of the 500, which really stretches from 1909 to to now, we can't say precisely how many of those were justifiable, but we can say that 85% of those over that 110 years were Black. And many of them came, I mean, Birmingham was always a violent place. It's been called the wild, wild west. But in the ways we tried to to figure out, one of the questions we asked through this is why the need of cards? Why was she, you know, sort of the prism that focused everything on Birmingham and changed everything? What was it about this woman that caused a change? And I personally believe that this is it. I mean, over the previous 30 years, this was not a secret. I mean, Black civic leaders were getting up and talking about it. Church leaders were getting up and talking about it, and nobody was listening. But it was not only legal for police to shoot someone they, who was fleeing from what they thought to be a felony. It was policy. It was expected. If you did not, if a cop did not shoot, then they could be reprimanded and often were. Hundreds of people, as we've seen, were killed, many of them young, many of them shot in the back over a matter of a few dollars. Many of them, white person says, that guy took $25 out of my cash register. Police officer shoots him. When he's running away, it was regular, it was common, it was every day. It was an occurrence that boggles the mind now. And so when it gets to Benita Carter, it it is as much enough is enough is enough. And real change began to happen. You cannot minimize how much change occurred because of that. In a a police department that had previously been entirely white, the largest in America, it was all white, and one that was known for dogs and fire hoses and shooting. In, in policies that encourage shootings. So all those things piled on the fact that the police officer who shot her had had 14 previous complaints, including several in which for a use of force and was only reprimanded one time, reprimanded one time because he beat a guy in the head with a gun during a traffic stop. But he wasn't reprimanded because he beat a guy in the head during a traffic stop. He was reprimanded because he beat him in the head with his gun and the reprimand said was for failing to carry his nightstick on duty. And that was the police department we're dealing with 
And that was, I mean, and you can understand the incredible amount of anger. And I love John's passion about this, and, and I'm going to stop him so he won't give away the whole series to everyone. Let me say this, because this, it would be a glaring omission not to say this. When I talked about how it was the police's responsibility and duty and policy to shoot a fling suspect, you know, that's one thing. But the reality of the matter was white people got a second chance. And black people got a bullet. The numbers are staggering. They are overwhelming. They are impossible to deny. It was two sets of justice. Black people die and white people go home. And John, here we are 50 years later, and we can say the exact same thing. We have a, a justice system now. We have policing in this country where overwhelmingly black people are getting the bullet while white people are getting a second chance or at least getting a chance to live. So that to me is also just one of the most profound things to take out of this is when you hear it and listen to it, it's as if Benita Carter was Breonna Taylor. Some of the questions that we're asking about Benita Carter, the same questions are beginning to be asked about Breonna Taylor. Why her? Why did she stir the masses at this time based on what happened with her. And, and of course, we know that she was killed when police broke into an apartment uh, where she was with her boyfriend and fired indiscriminately. And she was the one who was killed. And, and it was just recently decided that no serious charges would be brought up against anyone who was part of that murder. So here we are half a century later and asking the same questions now about Breonna Taylor. Of course, it's too soon to tell what kind of effect her death will have on this nation. We did sort of put a pause button on our demand for police reform, on our demand for a look at the criminal justice system, a pause for the election. But once we do have a sense of who the next president is, no matter who it is, we still have to put the pressure on local officials, on state officials, on national officials to continue the kind of reform that will allow equal protection under the law that will allow African-Americans to feel safe in their own neighborhoods. And yes, you know, we have some work to do on our own to assure better conflict resolution, to ensure that fewer guns are, are brought into neighborhoods, to ensure that people understand how to deal with each other in ways that are less violent. So there is a lot of internal work to be done, but that does not mitigate at all the notion that 50 years later, we're still calling for the kind of police reform that was demanded and ultimately created in the wake of Benita Carter's death. So the timing could not have been more tragically perfect for this podcast. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing more discussion as it airs and people hear about what transpired here in the 70s. Once again, uh, Birmingham will look to have a prominent role, perhaps, in the new level of reform. And people will be able to connect the dots, not just beginning with Breonna Taylor, but going back all the way to Benita Carter. I was struck yesterday, I was talking to John Hamtree about a quote from James Baldwin that I was enamored with. In it, he's referring to, to the civil rights movement of the 60s and says, white people are astounded by Birmingham. Black people aren't. White people are endlessly demanding to be reassured that Birmingham is really on Mars. They don't want to believe, still less to act on that belief, that what is happening in Birmingham is happening all over the country. They don't want to realize that there's not one step morally or actually 
between Birmingham and Los Angeles. And, you know, and I read that and it just struck me because you talked earlier about how black people and white people tend to remember this event differently. And I grew up in that area, that age, and I remembered it wrong. And you called it a conspiracy of silence, and it is. You know, I think it's more than that. It's a conspiracy to recast what happened. Oh, yeah, there was an intentionality to it, not just an omission, but an intentional rewriting of the truth. So, yes, that does make it different than what transpired in Tulsa, but essentially it's the same. You know, taking that truth and either erasing it, eliminating, putting your knee on the neck of truth, or rewriting it into something that is more palatable to white people. I would imagine that there are still quite a few white folks around who uh, remember the wrong version of the story. And I'm wondering if you uh, counter those folks and tell them that, you know, what really happened, how they receive it, what their reaction to that is. Yeah, I mean, it's people who quoted in the podcast who are very close to the situation, who knew, although the press has culpability for decades racially, I think they actually got this, this one right. I mean, they told the right story when it happened. So it makes it even more inexplicable to say I was there, I was close to it, and yet I remember it wrong. How does that happen? And it's still sort of a mystery how it happens, how it's absorbed as, as sort of the wrong thing. But I think that the overwhelming telling of that story has, among white people particularly, has been, has been misleading. Uh, not necessarily, I mean, I think it was probably intentionally misleading initially, but has become something that is simply misleading by accident. Well, if you say a lie enough times, it'll become the truth. So you're right. It maybe wasn't intentional after a generation or after a few years. But again, if, if you hear this narrative from enough places, you start to believe it's true. And it's painful to realize that that happens when that happens to you, as it happened to me. It's simply in the, I thought I knew what happened. Well, and to marry, you know, the two halves of this conversation, looking at demographic data of how people voted, you know, white people overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump. White majorities rejected Barack Obama. You know, what white majorities overwhelmingly are rejecting black and female candidates in the last four election cycles. And some of that may be, and not for everybody, but some of that may be because President Trump is actively rewriting those narratives for them. If President Trump is telling you, Oh, we're not locking up kids in cages on the border. That's not happening. We're not actually shooting black people unarmed in the streets. We're, we're suppressing riots. If the president is rewriting the narrative for you in real time so that you feel better about your actions and your decisions, then of course you're going to vote for that comfort. Of course you're going to vote for the person who's telling you all these terrible things that you are hearing about are happening aren't actually happening because it allows you to erase a Tulsa, to erase a Benita Carter, and to continue to exist in a, in a reality where those things take place on Mars. Well, there's no question, John, that over the last four years, we've heard so many untruths that I'm amazed sometimes when I hear them come out of the mouths of people that I deem to be reasonably intelligent and reasonably civil. And I have to tell them, I say, you know, that's not true, right? We can look it up on our phone and say, that is not true. When you hear that some of them espouse some of the things that supposedly he had accomplished, and it's like, mm, no, I don't think that that's actually true. So as I mentioned early in this show, just the you know, the fact that truth has been trampled on and too many people as demonstrated by what transpired last night, 
did not repudiate that, did not reject that is what is disheartening to me. I think the other thing that Trump did, and again, we don't know whether he is going to continue to be president or not, is that perhaps he activated a base that was not actively participating in politics at the national level, not to the level, to the degree that it did once he became the presidential nominee in 2016. And once he took that platform and began to create that narrative, that us versus them narrative, that America first narrative that he began to paint our brothers and sisters in South America and south of the border with evil names, that he began to talk about a wall, began to talk about jobs being taken back overseas, which he did not bring back, by the way, even though so many people say, well, he brought jobs back. Like, "Mm, you know, not quite sure he did that. So between activating more of that far right audience that maybe did not feel empowered before him and creating these narratives that too many people, reasonable people are believing in, that's, I think, part of what we saw on Tuesday night and, and, you know, gives us pause and lets us know, wow, this is, as I say in this, this upcoming column, this is who we are. And we just have to be honest about it and then figure out how and if we can become something else sooner rather than later. Well, guys, you have a terrific podcast on your hands. I was happy to be involved with it. For any of you out there who are listening to it, you know, if you've been fans of Serial, if you've been fans of S-Town, this is what those stories that take place in the South sound like when it's written and created by Southern storytellers. We've got music recorded in Muscle Shoals Sound Studio for you. We've got songs from Cedric Burnside and Sun Ra. Uh, Obviously, we have the great voices of John Archibald and Roy S. Johnson on the podcast. It will be available for you on Reckon Radio, wherever you get your podcast, November 16th. It's a six-episode series, and it is terrific. This is the last episode of our show. RL and I have really enjoyed going through Southern history with you and Southern politics with you for the last three months. We will be back in the new year with a new season of The Reckon Interview for you. This episode was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree. And me, Arl Nave. And it was edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. Thank you, Abby, for your great work on this season. And if you want us back next year, please go ahead and give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.